Did you see that picture of me in Yerevan in 88? Mm-hmm. And you said David Remnick took that picture? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, that that is a story in itself. Um, this whole late 1980s as a correspondent in the Soviet Union, it was really like covering a house fire. You would just go from one extreme to another within the course of two days. Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Today we have with us Jeff Trimble, who is currently a visiting professor at The Ohio State University. Jeff was a former Moscow bureau chief for U.S. News and World Report and went on to hold various roles at Radio Free Europe and now what is called the U.S. Agency for Global Media. So I hope you enjoy. Stand by to receive our transmission. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Scotty, meet me Live long and prosper. All ready. Michelle, you ready? Jeff Trimble, welcome to the show. Delighted to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. And are you joining us from Columbus right now? I am joining you from Columbus, Ohio, where, as is the situation with you all and with just about everybody, we're finishing out this semester in a Mm -hmm. virtual way, the world of Zoom. Uh, So I'm trying to wrap up two classes here at Ohio State, uh, one on disinformation in the digital age and the other one on media and terrorism with a group of really terrific students who've hung in there as best they can under these amazingly weird circumstances. Well, upsettingly, those are two very relevant subjects that I'm sure we'll get to. But first, I wanted to start it sort of with the beginning of your career. So I noticed looking into you that uh, your second passion was journalism and your first was to be an astronaut. Is that actually correct? And it remains my passion, (laughs) as I've cautioned my wife of nearly 40 years. If NASA knocked on the door right now and said, we're going to Mars tomorrow, I would kiss her goodbye reluctantly, but off I would go. Uh, Yes, I uh, was. I loved physics. Uh, I grew up with the space program. I came to Ohio State as an undergrad and started studying physics, got to the really tough calculus. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is the sort of the off the record version of it, uh, because I don't like to spin this one too publicly. No, I what really got me was was the journalism bug. This was the Mm -hmm. time of Watergate. Journalists were asserting themselves in defense of our democracy and in serving the appropriate role of holding our leaders responsible, accountable for their actions. And I was incredibly turned on in the mid-70s by the work of Woodward and Bernstein and other great investigative journalists. And that's really what pulled me into the business. And so where did the Soviet connection come from? Was that a personal passion? Was that a Yuri Gagarin bleeding over? Or was it just a good beat to be a, a Soviet journalist? <laughs> well, on, on the on the personal front, my mother was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, Anna Sowitsky, Sowitskaya, uh, to first generation to Ukrainian parents. Uh, and I had heard in the background growing up uh, them speaking Ukrainian. I'd had the opportunity and took advantage of it to study Russian in high school here in the Columbus area and went on to study it in college. And to me, it just seemed a really logical thing to pair with journalism, that having knowledge of a foreign language pretty well, and in particular Russian, so we were talking about enemy number one, the Soviet Union, would be a useful thing to have in my pocket going forward in my career. It probably wouldn't get me my first job, maybe not even my second job, but at some point Russian would come in handy. And in fact, that's exactly the way it worked out for me. 
It seems like you got you your third job or what, uh, where in the line was the Moscow station chief? Just about two and a half. Uh, I, I walked out of Ohio Stadium in 1978 and packed my Volkswagen Rabbit and drove to Kansas City, Missouri and went to work for the Kansas City Star on an internship there, but then came back to Ohio State to study Slavic languages and literatures and went to the Soviet Union for the first time in late 1978 on a study program at what was then the brand new Pushkin Institute of Russian Language, uh, which was set up to teach people to teach Russian as a foreign language originally and made then three subsequent student visits to there, finished my master's degree ultimately in journalism, went to work for U.S. News and World Report initially in New York and then in Rome covering the Middle East, North Africa uh, and Southern Europe and then went to Moscow in August of 1986. So I'd say Rome to Moscow is a real promotion in terms of interest, but demotion in terms of uh, climate. Uh, I've joked over the years with people that uh, Rome was actually good preparation for Moscow. Hmm. Uh, For one thing, the architecture was not dissimilar. The same folks who designed the Mm -hmm. Vatican, after all, designed the Kremlin. So that's part of it. Uh, But also because... um, you know, I think it's no accident that the Italians, even through this, the Soviet period, got along quite well with the uh, Soviets and did a lot mm-hmm. of business together at times when uh, the Soviets were not doing a lot of business with, uh, some of, with some of the other Western countries. I mean, building Togliatti, building the great auto works. So there was something, I think, in the mindset of the Italians that played out well and helped me when I got to Moscow with uh, with with that particular work. Although, of course, vast differences between between the two countries. Yeah, I'm sure there's sort of a strange third Rome sort of connection, though. I don't think Moscow was calling itself the third Rome in the Soviet period so much, but there is sort of that cultural ethereal relationship. I couldn't agree more, and that and that uh, that goes on till today. In fact, mm-hmm. as we see Russian airplanes landing in northern Italy to deliver aid supplies, for instance, and being welcomed in the Italian prime minister or the foreign minister the other day, I forget who, talking uh, very appreciatively of the uh, Russian aid and not being at all hesitant to to voice that. And about mm-hmm. the Chinese aid as well, I should say. And so I think one of the stories that came up was your actual promotion came because your predecessor was indicted on espionage charges. I'm sure there's a story there. So the way it played out was that um, I'd been selected to go to Moscow to replace uh, Nick Daniloff, a veteran journalist, had been with United Press International, had been in Moscow early in his career, and was back in Moscow wrapping up a five-year tour for U.S. News and World Report. So I landed in Moscow together with my wife and then almost two-year-old daughter. Uh, and settled into a sort of spare apartment not far from the U.S. News and World Report apartment. Spent a couple of delightful days with Nick Daniloff and his wife, Ruth, uh, making the transition. And Nick then at one point said, you know, I'm going to go out for a walk to meet uh, an old friend and say goodbye. Uh, It's someone with whom I've had different contacts over the years. His name is Misha. He's from Frunze. And among other things, he's a good source of information about things going on down near the Afghan border. Uh, This, of course, was during the uh, Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. This was the pre-internet era. And Nick said, so he's just a fellow with whom I'd like to meet uh, regularly. Well, time went by, time went by. Nick didn't come back to the apartment and didn't come back to the apartment. And finally, we got a telephone call from Phil Taubman, who then was the bureau chief for the New York Times and said, is there something going on with Nick? 
And we said, well, well, not to our knowledge. And then we were able to ascertain that as Nick had been out on this walk with Misha of Frunze in the Lenin Hills, now again called the Sparrow Hills, um, uh, Misha had given him an envelope saying, here are latest newspapers from Frunze. Uh, and after he gave him the envelope and they parted company, it was the classic Keystone Cop uh, guys jumping out from behind bushes, grabbing Nick, opening the envelope and finding in the envelope, not newspapers, but military maps with mm. locations of Soviet troops noted in Afghanistan. Uh, what was behind the story, Tom, is that the Americans had arrested a UN employee, a Soviet employee at the United Nations, a guy named Zaharov, who did not have diplomatic cover. Uh, and therefore, they needed to grab somebody to trade for their guy, Zaharov. And Nick was the guy. He was nearing the end of his tour. He had good connections. Uh, it was easy to set him up in this particular circumstance. And so off he went to Lafortova and spent a couple of weeks there. He then was released and allowed to um, move back home where he stayed for a couple of weeks before he was allowed to leave the Soviet Union. So that was quite the introduction for me and my, and my young family yeah. to life as a correspondent in Moscow. I guess in terms of being fired from a job in the Soviet Union, that's probably, you know, the 60th percentile. Probably. Bad yeah, probably. Exactly. Exactly that. So, and that, of course, was just the beginning of a whole lot of adventures that involved all kinds of things, even including still the uh, still the KGB monitoring, surveillance, all that kind of stuff. And so you, you were in charge from 86 to 91, which would not be mistaken for a dull period in Soviet history. Um, maybe you could pick out one event because we couldn't possibly cover everything that <laughs> happened in that five years. I think more than one event, it was the seesawing of emotions and events. It was my friend Bill Keller, who was then uh, replaced Phil and was the bureau chief for the New York Times and got the Pulitzer Prize, I think, in 89 mm -hmm. for his reporting from the Soviet Union and, of course, went on to be executive editor of the New York Times. I think it was Bill Keller who first described that period when we were talking about it at one point as he felt as though he was a reporter assigned to cover a house fire, a house that was burning <laughs> down. And that uh, that just meant not knowing from one minute to the next what he was going to be engaged in, in covering. So as an example of the seesaw, I think I would pick out late 1988. And a group of us Moscow correspondents had flown in a press plane behind that of Mihal Gorbachev to New York City where Gorbachev delivered uh, a really incredible historic speech at the United Nations in which he announced unilaterally the reduction of Soviet military forces, um, a, a, a substantial reduction in Soviet, the size of the Soviet military uh, as a gesture toward peace. Of course, we probably, we understood that that was probably a function of the difficult economic situation the Soviet Union found itself in. So there we were in the great halls of the United Nations in New York, um, listening to and reporting on this historic speech Mihal Gorbachev had given. And in the middle of the night, I got a phone call from uh, Gennady Gerasimov, who then was Gorbachev's spokesman or the foreign ministry spokesman. I can't remember just now what role he played at that time, saying, we're going back to Moscow. And I said, oh, my God, what's happened? He said, there'd been an earthquake in Armenia and, and mm -hmm. General Secretary feels the needs to return. So uh, off we went to the airport, flew back to uh, the Soviet Union. And two days later, I found myself uh, in Spitak in rural 
Armenia outside a school that had collapsed and there still were children alive in the basement of the school and construction crews were making an effort with cranes to lift huge concrete slabs off to free these children who were trapped under the rubble. And sadly, it was an effort that failed when the rubble collapsed into the wreckage and uh, and killed the rest of these kids. So God. going from New York to Spitak, mm-hmm. Armenia, in the course of a couple of days, I think represents just how astonishing and unpredictable events were at that particular time in history. And so, I mean, in terms of being in your field and being there when the collapse actually happened, do you remember sort of your temperature of what was going on at the moment? Because now it's easy to look back and be like, yes, it was a burning house. But if you look at sort of CIA intelligence and what was being produced at the time, there was still sort of this underlying fear that this is an outward projection of weakness. The Soviet Union is still strong and they are you know, getting stronger by the day. Collapse wasn't widely accepted in sort of the prognosticator community. So it's a cliche, but I think there's a very good reason why journalism is called the first draft of history. Um, journalists on the front lines are often way ahead of other analysts. They are seeing, they're perceiving, they're more immersed in societies than even our friends and colleagues in the diplomatic corps in events. So the whole wind down of the Soviet Union um, went in kind of a staggered fashion in that initially the correspondents who were in Moscow early in the Gorbachev period, and he'd already been in power for a year when, when I got there, were really very excited about Gorbachev and prospects for reform. And they were reporting back to editors in London and Washington and elsewhere who were extremely skeptical, saying, oh, come on, it's a Soviet Union. Nothing's Mm -hmm. ever going to change there. This guy's just going to be another one of those. Um, and, And so they were reporting back to skeptical editors. Then by about 1987... The situation changed, and the event I remember most uh, that changed the perception of those on the outside was Gorbachev's trip to Washington in December of 1987 to sign uh, with Ronald Reagan the INF Treaty, uh, which sadly has gone by the by uh, in the last year. Um, And that was the trip in which Gorbachev stopped his limousine at a street corner in downtown Washington and got out and waved to the crowd and shook hands with people. And everyone was charmed by Gorbachev. Uh, The journalists from Moscow already at that time were picking up on signs of trouble and reporting on signs of trouble. There was the beginning of the rise of nationalist sentiments in the republics. There was the beginning of an independent labor movement. The economy clearly was beginning Mm -hmm. to go south. But now we found ourselves in a position of reporting back to these editors who were experiencing, and pardon the expression, but we as correspondents referred to it as Gorbasm. They were in love with the guy. And so it was, well, how can you say anything bad about Gorbachev? And the journalists were saying, no, 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 there's trouble here. So for me, this all culminated in November of 1990. So a year and a month before the collapse of the Soviet Union, when my editors at U.S. News and World Report, and in particular my foreign editor, John Walcott, gave me the go-ahead to do a story that was a cover story that said, Soviet Union's going to fall apart. They aren't going to make it. And we put a tombstone on the cover of U.S. News and World Report 
with the years 1917 to, and we didn't fill in the other end. And of course, <laughs> 1917 wasn't exactly accurate because the right. Soviet Union wasn't around until what, 22 formally. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, we called that shot and other journalists and, and others who were on the scene were seeing that. So at a time when in fact, governments, uh, others were seemed were really were taken by surprise. Those of us who'd been in Kiev, those of us who'd been out in Vilnius, those of us who'd been out to Sahalin, those of us who'd been to Kazakhstan to talk to the coal miners forming their unions, um, we knew this wasn't those of us living in the Soviet economy at that time, which was a basket case. We knew this wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. So that collapse that came at the very end, the coup was a surprise certainly, but the collapse ultimately itself was in motion. And by the beginning of 1991, it was pretty clear to everybody reporting out of Moscow that this was no longer a viable system. And so following the collapse, your sort of identity as a journalist, the beat you cover no longer exists. So what what were you feeling at that moment? There must be kind of, you know, I mean, in that period, there was sort of a triumphal American spirit about it. But in terms of what is there to do afterwards is unclear. It might even remain unclear committing, considering how America positions itself in the world. So what was your kind of place in the world in 92, 93? So, but I mean, if you're a journalist, you move on. <clears throat> I mm-hmm. did what a lot of journalists do, which was to spend a year at Harvard at the <laughs> Shorenstein Center, thinking about what it was I had just experienced and doing some writing about that specifically about the role of the KGB toward the end of the Soviet Union and its effort to reform itself under 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 Gorbachev. But then there was other work to do. There were other places to go. I ended up back in Washington and I was foreign editor at U.S. News. Of course, we had the war in the Balkans uh, break out. So attention turned elsewhere as the world looked at redefining what is a superpower? What's the role of the nation state in the post-superpower era? What's the new alignment of forces going to be around the world? There was a lot to do as, as the Cold War ended and as something new or a new world disorder, I guess, began to, uh, began to, began to emerge. Uh, what also happened, however, that was an unfortunate byproduct is that with the cutback in America's interest in the rest of the world, that followed the end of the Cold War, the media began to cut back, of course, as well. Bureaus were closed. There was less space in magazines and on television news programs for news about the world. So the interest fell off in the global story. Well, I was interested in the global story. So ultimately, I did become very frustrated at the lack of interest in foreign news that was prevalent here in the United States by about the mid-90s. Yeah, this just rhymes with all the podcasts we've been talking about and public diplomacy and soft power and that the U.S. just kind of pulled back in that period because it made sense to. And uh, we had another class where we were talking about the Rwandan genocide and the closest beat that the U.S. had was a guy in Cameroon who was pretty much mm-hmm. covering all of southern Africa. So there was just no coverage because there wasn't really a market for it at all. Yeah, the pullback in coverage, it blinded us to a certain extent. It took away that unique perspective that you get from these individuals in the field who ideally have the languages, have some experience, have some background, have the connections. And to rely on people who just fly in from a London base Mm -hmm. or from Washington or elsewhere can't possibly give you the same kind of coverage. Now, in saying that, 
I don't want to diminish the role of journalists in the countries about which we're trying to report. The locals who increasingly are the backbone bone of reporting for us, stringers, freelancers, fixers, helpers, some kind of relationship are invaluable. And there are incredible people, incredibly brave people doing that journalism. But where they struggle is in connecting with American audiences, in being able to tell stories in a way that they're accessible to Americans. So in that, we lose something by not having a rich network of American correspondents in key places around the world and in some places that aren't so key, but might become key. And sure, I mean, it's difficult to know what's happening in Kyrgyzstan. It's difficult to know what's happening in some places in, say, rural Mississippi. So, I mean, this is a complicated issue and it's not just international weakness. So this is where we need to look increasingly at the more specialized media outlets to get news and information. And that sort of takes me to the next part of my own career, uh, which was in 90, 1997 when I went to work for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty in, in Prague. Uh, so RFERL was an interesting historical case study. It was meant to be uh, a, a dividend, if you will, of the end of the Cold War. In 1994, uh, President Clinton's budget zeroed out Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. It was to be closed uh, after working since the early 1950s uh, initially, initially uh, which many people don't know. Initially, it was not Radio Svoboda for Russia. It was Radio Asvabajdenia was the original name of Radio Liberty, Radio Radio Liberation uh, back in the early 1950s before it became Radio Liberty. And then, of course, Radio Free Europe for the uh, countries of Eastern Europe. Um, but uh, it was to close down. It was game over. It was done. And uh, that did not happen for a variety of reasons. Happy to go into detail about that. But as a result, you still today have a very strong news organization, including in places such as Kyrgyzstan. You need to know what's going on in Kyrgyzstan. You can find it out by going to Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and consuming the content that's there in English. And it's darn good. And it's right up to date. And along with a couple of other uh, news entities and outlets, you can keep up with those parts of the world. But you can't do it by going to the New York Times. This is Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. <laughs> and now do you see the role of Radio Free Europe changing? You said you're there, I think, 97 to 07, 08 through Clinton administration and Bush administration, obviously both kind of focused and similar ideals of spreading democracy, different tactics taken to accomplish that, of course. So initially the pitch, if you will, to keep Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty going was, hey, the transition to democracy, civil society, stable societies is far from accomplished. And that call came to uh, President Clinton from Václav Havel, came from Lech Wałęsa, and others, the leaders of the revolutions of 1989 and those in the post-Soviet space who got right to the White House and said, wait a minute, way, way, way too early to shut this down. And it was during that period, 94, 95, that a deal was struck and Václav Havel effectively put his money where his mouth was and said, tell you what, why don't you move this operation from Munich 
where it had been through the Cold War to Prague, capital of the Czech Republic, where, by the way, I Havel happened to have a beautiful empty building at the top of Wenceslas Square because we no longer have Czechoslovakia. So the thing that had been our federal parliament is an empty building, and you guys can have it for the grand, <laughs> for the grand sum of one Czech crown a day, which ended up being about $12 a year rent. Uh, so RFERL was able to rethink itself, rethink its operations, resize itself, leave Germany behind, set up shop in the Czech Republic, and continue to look east uh, for its work. And yes, very much the work during that period was reinforcing, if you will, the establishment of democratic principles and civil society, serving as a place that could be a bridge where different communities could come together, communities that might be ghettoized, if you will, in their own media outlets could come together and find common platform at the services of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Uh, unfortunately, once we got into the 2000s, and in particular after Vladimir Putin came to power, we saw things turning back to a situation in which many of the services of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, again, are operating in an environment that's not so different from that in which they operated during the Cold War. Almost completely closed media environments, highly restrictive conditions for journalists, and the RFERL people find themselves in that situation, which frankly was not something we anticipated back in the, in the mid-90s. And did shutting off of outside media happen immediately when Putin came in charge? Or was it more when he eased into the role and he kind of realized that these, you know, subversive media doesn't do any good for Russia? It was gradual, as so many things else with Vladimir, so many other things with Vladimir Putin. Uh, it was well planned. It was thought through. It was well prepared. So quite a number of things happened before the real clampdown came and before it began to affect uh, RFERL in particular. Uh, the real turning point that I saw for RFERL in Russia was in 2006. Uh, and in 2005, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and our sister station, The Voice of America, the Voice of America had distribution on more than 100 television and FM radio outlets across the Russian Federation. It was readily accessible to television and radio listeners inside uh, Russia. By the year after that, that number had fallen almost to zero. So the pieces were in place at that point to, to do the clampdown, and that's when the clampdown on the foreign broadcasters really came in earnest. And what had happened, and this was part of the interim step that the Russians had taken to, if you will, ready things for that moment, is that with increasing access to the internet, dozens and dozens and dozens of very entertaining, uh, very informative, very distracting websites and web-based products had been set up. So there was, if you will, a very crowded already digital environment. So as RFERL and VOA and the BBC and Deutsche Welle and the other international broadcasters lost their ability to distribute on radio and television in Russia and had to move over, if you will, to the digital space in earnest, they found themselves in an incredibly competitive, crowded environment where getting audiences and drawing audiences became much more of a challenge. 
Captain, what do we do? If we keep this speed, we'll blow up any minute now. Do you think that made you guys a little more prepared for like the in earnest sweep into the digital sector of media in general? Or were you guys kind of following the wave that every other institution was following? It did help push us away from the legacy platforms. Uh, U.S. international broadcasting is a very complicated media enterprise for many reasons, but one of which is that it has to maintain platforms, delivery platforms to reach people in many different kinds of media environments around the world. So as a media outlet such as CNN could move quickly away from broadcast over the air television, uh, U.S. international broadcasting still finds itself certain places in the world having to rely on shortwave radio broadcasting. Now, when I speak to people in my classes, um, I have difficulty finding one who has ever heard of, much less seen and held in their hands, a shortwave radio receiver. Uh, that's just not the way it's done in most right. of the world. But to this day, U.S. international broadcasting to reach certain audiences in closed societies, such as North Korea, relies on shortwave radio. Um, and also it remains effective in Afghanistan and certain parts of Africa. So while you have to maintain those platforms and you're operating on a flat budget, you've also got to be leading edge in the digital environment and everything else that comes in between. So it poses an enormous challenge for the broadcasters, in particular Voice of America, which is the true global broadcaster of U.S. international broadcasting that has content that's available virtually everywhere in the world. This is the Voice of America, Washington, D.C., signing on. Looking through your rap sheet, it seems like you held every role at a... Uh you know, these institutions, what were some of the main responsibilities you had? I know you interacted quite a bit with foreign governments. Were you sort of the one who was like, hey, you guys need this in your country? Or was it more kind of managing different regulations? It, it's a great question. And it gives me an opportunity to, to talk a little bit about the distinct nature, the rather unique nature of U.S. international broadcasting as a media organization. So I came into Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, as a journalist uh, in charge of the um, media operations, the media side, the 20-some uh, broadcast services at RFERL, the central newsroom. And I was a journalist doing a journalist job, managing a journalistic operation, full stop. At the same time, those journalistic operations are going on independently. There is another part of U.S. international broadcasting, which ties it to the U.S. government and uh, the foreign policy priorities of the United States. But that part of U.S. international broadcasting does not interfere with the journalistic content that the broadcasters are creating, that the journalists are creating. Um, but the point of this being that the, the $800 million a year that U.S. taxpayers devote to U.S. international broadcasting doesn't come just because it's a great idea to do good journalism. Uh, at some level, U.S. international broadcasting has to reflect the foreign policy priorities. If nothing else, where it operates has to reflect those priorities. Uh, and also the ideas or the projection of American thought that's most important has to be incorporated. So there is, if you will, a corporate side of U.S. international broadcasting 
We refer to it as the high side of the firewall or the other side of the firewall that handles these interagency operations that does go and talk with foreign governments um, about the wide range of issues going from distribution of content to other things that might uh, affect distribution. For instance, one of the last things I did before leaving in 2018 was to make a trip to Ukraine to sit down with some senior officials there and speak to them about the language law changes that were being put into effect that was going to limit the amount of Russian language content for Ukrainian media audiences. And we in U.S. international broadcasting had, at the earlier request of the Ukrainian government, um, made a real effort to create targeted Russian language content for Ukrainian audiences. So I wanted to put in a good word as they were thinking about reworking these laws and limiting the amount of Russian language content to say, look, I understand your target of concern is Russia and Russian disinformation and propaganda, but please understand that these changes in the law are going to affect our ability to operate in Ukraine as well. So that would be an example, if you will, of the kind of the diplomatic role that I was able to play in U.S. international broadcasting as an official on, if you will, the corporate side of the uh, firewall in the operation. I'm glad you brought up Russia too. How do you see U.S. international broadcasting competing with RT or Chinese state media who have made major inroads in getting in the Middle East, getting in Africa to promote their, you know, it is state media, but it's, it's news at the end of the day. So many of the main targets of Russia's international information efforts, and that's not just RT, it's Sputnik, but it's a whole host of other products as well are not, they are not aimed at markets in which U.S. international broadcasting operates. U.S. international broadcasting targets countries around the world where people are underserved by their domestic media, where domestic media are limited, where there is not a free media, where countries are struggling to adopt civil society and democratic practices or having economic troubles. So U.S. international broadcasting does not target Great Britain. It does not target Denmark. It does not target France. And we're talking now about countries that are key targets for Russian international information operations. And of course, U.S. international broadcasting does not target the United States. Um, Earlier, it was not permitted to, by law, target the United States with its broadcasts. Um, Those provisions have been changed in the Smith-Munt Act. Um, But um, at the same time, there's not money given to U.S. international broadcasting to reach U.S. audiences. So an incredibly important market for the Russians, and that is trying to reach Americans and influence Americans, is not a place where U.S. international broadcasting would be be a competitor for the Russians. But you do raise, for instance, the Spanish-speaking world, where RT has been very successful. The Arabic-speaking world, where RT has uh, very good numbers. The Chinese, of course, as well, are devoting billions Mm -hmm. of dollars to their international information efforts. And it is surely stiff competition for U.S. international broadcasting. Um, The biggest difference uh, in the actual operational situation that we face is that U.S. international broadcasting in many of the environments in which it operates is not able to operate freely in those countries. And that includes Russia. While Russian International broadcasting is able to operate freely in these countries that have free and open information 
environments. I know RT has had to register under the, the Foreign Agents Act uh, in the United States, but that has not inhibited, inhibited or limited RT's ability to operate in the U.S., whereas, as I mentioned, U.S. international broadcasting has no distribution in the Russian Federation other than digital. And at least in the last few years, you do, you do see when you come across an RT video on YouTube where it says RT is paid for by the Russian government. That didn't exist, you know, four years ago. So even that label, I think, changes how people view it, at least in the U.S. But it's still it exists here. We don't exist there. This has been a step taken by and large by the social media companies themselves mm -hmm. to try to help people understand better where the content they're consuming is coming from. It's right. a process and a procedure that's not without problems because I don't like to see Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty identif identified as a government-sponsored broadcaster the way RT's identified as a government-sponsored broadcaster because the mandates and the operational style are completely different. So there are things about this approach I don't like, mm -hmm. but I do think from the perspective of a good consumer that having a bit more transparency into what is this thing called RT, because it's not Russia today, and if you're, uh, and <laughs> if you're scrolling through a social media feed, you're liable to give as much weight to a thing called RT as you are to a thing called the New York Times if you're not a sophisticated media consumer. So I think the labeling actually has helped to some extent people understand and contextualize a bit more where they're getting their information from. How have you seen this whole equation change under Trump? Uh, well, in terms of U.S. international broadcasting first, the Trump administration hasn't paid a great deal of attention to it. It has gone along. Uh, he has not, he has nominated a chief operating officer for U.S. international broadcasting, but that individual has not been um, confirmed by the Senate. So at this point, it's being run by uh, professional civil servants uh, in lieu of having a presidentially appointed head. Uh, we'll see how that goes. There was something very strange that happened last week, which was that the White House's uh, daily briefing put out called 1600 Daily um, attacked the voice of America and said that the Voice of America was being too favorable to China in some of the coverage that it was carrying specifically about the coronavirus um, um, issue. This came completely out of the blue. Mm -hmm. And the director of the Voice of America, Amanda Bennett, posted a, a very extensive uh, rebuttal, not specifically rebutting the White House, but just saying, here's what we're actually doing, covering coronavirus and China's role in coronavirus and place in it. So um, it was a, a kind of an odd hiccup that could potentially signal a certain interest, if you will, on the part of the White House and U.S. international broadcasting. So we may see a little more action there. The other part of this, though, Tom, is interesting, is how do you report Donald Trump to the rest of the world hmm. uh, in 61 languages? Uh, and that can be as simple as trying to figure out um, how to say uh, correctly in one of the African languages, shithole countries, <laughs> um, to um, just trying to interpret the political processes underway in the United States, impeachment uh, and uh, the election campaign and all the craziness around these things and Trump's own behavior and his style as a politician. On the one hand, if your job is to tell America's story, 
you've got a hell of a story to tell. Mm -hmm. (laughs) On the other hand, it doesn't easily fit into the image that traditionally perhaps uh, America would have wanted to project to itself of itself overseas. But it is what it is. And that's part of the great American experiment that needs to be told to the world. It is an experiment. And that Mm -hmm. experiment involves characters uh, like Donald Trump. That is the way it is. Uh, So the challenge of reporting Donald Trump to the rest of the world um, has, in fact, I think, increased audiences for U.S. international broadcasting because there's a lot of interest in Donald Trump and what he has to say and what he thinks about things. So, um, yeah, a multifaceted set of challenges in covering Donald Trump for the rest of the world. And I've noticed that too professionally at places I've worked that do similar media coverage. They're like, Trump makes our job a lot harder, but it also makes your job a lot more interesting. I think that's the case. And and uh, the live coverage, increasingly you see U.S. international broadcasting doing live coverage of uh, events involving the Trump administration, Trump himself doing simultaneous translation into Persian, into Russian, into Arabic. Uh, which has got to be fascinating for those audiences around the world. Again, perhaps not the image of America that many Americans would like to see projected, but it's a case of it is what it is. That might be the title of the podcast. To at least get up to the modern day. So is this your first foray into teaching? Yeah, I was a teaching uh, assistant at The Ohio State University many years ago. I taught the uh, mandatory photojournalism course that all journalism (laughs) majors had to take, which consisted of getting people in dark rooms, figuring out how to get film in and out of uh, uh, a school so you could get it developed. Uh, But uh, no, on a serious note, yes, uh, after this 40-year career in journalism and scratching my head and puzzling over this really rather broken profession today, if you will, challenged profession, to think hard about uh, together with this amazing generation of young people coming up who, despite everything, are remarkably optimistic and engaged and and, uh, encouraging to be around, to rethink the role of journalism in our society. And it's been a wonderful opportunity here at Ohio State and engaging with colleagues at other universities, including uh, University of Texas, to talk about some of these issues, the role of journalism in the world today, the challenges we face, particularly in, an, in the modern era of disinformation, uh, the visuals, the deep fakes, if you will, and all the other things that we're confronting now, the memes and the challenges that we're facing and that are only going to intensify to think these things through. It's a lot of fun. Do you see any large differences between sort of the journalists you grew up with, you learned with compared to the crop today? Do you think, I mean, I think there is something optimistic about getting into the profession of journalism. That isn't something you necessarily pursue if you have a negative outlook on the world, if you don't think you can help change the world. I think there's just sort of an optimistic kernel in every journalist. Well, it may be optimistic. It may be something else. Um, I've (laughs) never... I've never met anyone who went into journalism because he or she was happy with the status quo. Right. You go into journalism because you want to make a difference. You see things that are unjust. You see things that aren't right. You see stories that need to be told and you tell those stories. For some journalists, the vehicle of journalism itself ends up being ultimately not the right way to express those things. I'm thinking of somebody like John Steinbeck, who turned away from journalism and started to write these incredibly moving novels based on his experiences and what he'd observed that probably did more to move the needle on these social issues than a typical journalist 
journalist would do. So that, I think, is a consistent that runs through journalism through the decades. What I see that's different in the generation of journalists today is that they have to be able to do many, many more things well and quickly. In my day as a journalist, you were a print journalist or you were a broadcast journalist, uh, or you were in public relations, and you didn't try to take pictures, photographs, if you were a print journalist. You didn't do them both. There was somebody else to do that. And so the idea of a journalist today having to cover all of these bases, and with a deadline for all intents and purposes, every second, if you will, as opposed to writing for a weekly news magazine, being published once a week, which gave me the opportunity to think about things, to go back and get the second interview, to work back and forth with editors on stories in a way that people in the business today simply can't do. And their job made even more difficult by the cutbacks at media organizations that have eliminated levels of editing and other kinds of oversight and interaction. So the journalists are much, much more on their own today. So I see some consistent uh, things over the years, and I see some real differences today, Some about some of which I'm really optimistic and excited, and others of which I kind of feel for this new generation of journalists because it's so complicated. How do you see that affecting those who are specialists in journalism? You know, if I see a David Remnick story, a Masha Gessen story, a Lauren Threat story, it's just like, I buy it. I mean, whatever you say is going to be true or at least close to it. If now you have to have a media strategy, you have to cut videos, you have to know what's happening in Russia, but then you also have to report on a story in Mexico. How can you possibly be any good at this? So you've got to have a, a whole variety of people involved in this. And you mentioned two very talented people, uh, both of whom with whom I've worked with Masha Gessen and, and Dave Remnick. Um, I never would have thought years and years ago that the New Yorker was going to be a must read for me having an interest in Russia. Uh, that mm-hmm. wasn't the world in, in which we lived. It would have been the New York Times probably or, or the Financial Times or I hope say U.S. News and World Report or some of these <laughs> other yeah. places. But um, we have these niche markets and the uh, places where experts can go and do go and do do long form work. Uh, again, my colleagues at Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty do fabulous long form work that is extremely insightful about the former Soviet space and other parts of the world. So it's there. There are those who manage to specialize and do that kind of work. But what I have in mind more is a person going to work for the uh, Columbus Dispatch or even the Washington Post on, uh, on some kind of operation where in the old days you would have had a beat covering the agriculture department. Mm-hmm. Today you've got a shuttle between the agriculture department and the treasury department and the, um, uh, and the uh, FEMA and God knows what else. Uh, just because of the downsizing and, and and the way the business operates. So it depends where you are. But uh, yeah, there's no question that if you're, say, the NPR correspondent in Moscow now, that you're really pressed to cover all the bases given the digital demands in addition to doing your radio content in a way that uh, people back in my day would not have been. So we're approaching the end of the end of our time. I just want to ask you, um, obviously, this is your first time teaching. What has been your favorite part? What did you expect? Not obviously you didn't expect to be teaching on Zoom for the last semester. Um, what sort of surprises did you come upon? Um, I think it's the level of engagement of the students uh, that the, um, the students sort of come in two varieties. One variety is uh, an individual who is completely 
unafraid of uh, an instructor uh, and and will start out their conversations by sort of, you know, hey, professor or, or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's a level of informality that I never would have exhibited when I was a college student. Uh, you know, I had trouble imagining my, my professors actually going home and going to the grocery store or whatever. They kind of lived <laughs> off in some other world. So there is one type of college student that will look you right in the eye and engage you in this very informal, straight at you kind of way. Um, there is another type, and it's a type uh, in this generation that I don't think likes uh, likes the grown-ups very much, uh, and they're uh, almost uh, a little bit in avoidance or a little bit resentful. They're a minority, but there certainly is that strain as well of kids who are not particularly engaged and, and seem, if you will, a little bit almost resentful. But for the most part, it's the willingness to step up and engage, and even in this incredibly difficult environment of, of Zoom to uh, you know maybe turn your camera off because you're still in your jammies, but nevertheless to to uh, kick off mute and have something to say about about an issue of the day. That's been very exciting for me. I get as much energy, and I think I've been learning as much from them as they're learning from me. I think I somehow managed to be informal and unengaged as a student. So I was kind of the worst part of both categories. <laughs> That's all good. And of course, anybody who goes into Russian and Russian area studies right now, you know, this is a field that really, really needs people at this point. It, it, it kind of faded away in many respects with that, that fall off after the Cold War. But there's no question that a new generation of excited, informed, and engaged people who know the language well, who know the culture well, who know the history well are, are really important. So I hope lots of people are listening to this and are doing a great job on their studies and are going to come in and take over and, and do a great job on keeping us as Americans well-informed and understanding this uh, crazy beast called Russia. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for your time. I'm um, excited to see what future teaching holds for you. Hopefully we don't have to talk about fake news and deep fakes for the rest of our lives, but I'm glad someone like you is in charge. Really appreciate the time and uh, very much appreciate the engagement. Great stuff. Thank you. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you. 